Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, I'm Patricia Duff and welcome back to The Common Good. I hope you had a terrific uh, summer. Um, and it uh, looked like um, we were starting to get back where we needed to be. And then what do you know, um, we're, it looks like we may be back in trouble. But before I begin, I, I wanna mention a few honorables, past hosts and speakers in the audience. Uh, so I'm sending a shout out to the Honorable Amanda Burden and Gillian Sorensen, uh, special guests Gil Shiva, Jacqueline Leo, Kim Tepal, Rick Solomon, Sally Menard, um, Marie Brenner, Olivia Hogue. Welcome, welcome, and welcome um, to all of our other uh, folks on the Zoom today. We're excited to have you. Um, with a vigorous rollout of several different highly effective vaccinations last spring, President Biden was nearly ready for a victory lap in July about bringing COVID under control. Um, today, we're dealing with COVID cases that have swamped hospitals, mostly in areas with much lower rates of vaccination. And currently, the United States is averaging more than 150,000 COVID cases per day, new infections um, and more than 1,500 deaths a day with only 53% of the population is fully vaccinated. So what's ahead? Are we winning, losing, or treading water in the fight against COVID? We've got a terrific conversation ready for you. We are extremely grateful to welcome back the brilliant Dr. William Hazeltine, respected not only for his accomplishments at Harvard and as an entrepreneur in medical business areas, but also for his work on cancer, HIV, AIDS uh, epidemic, um, genomics. And now he is the internationally recognized um, doctor for his expertise on COVID-19 in this pandemic. Bill, thank you so much for joining us again. Happy to have you. And to lead this conversation, we have a friend of the common good and a member of our honorary advisory board, Susan Del Percio. Susan is a nationally recognized crisis communication expert and public affairs strategist as well as the political analyst for MSNBC and a columnist for Aussie Media. Susan, thank you so much for joining us. Now I'm passing the conversation over to you, Susan, thanks. Well, thanks so much for having me, Patricia. Um, when I mentioned to a few people what I was doing today, they all said, well, ask about this. Whatever you do, ask about this. But I kind of want to start where Patricia led off with the fact that if we were doing this briefing in July, doctor, we would have said, we only have 12,000 new cases per day. We're at 200 deaths per day. It looks like we're making progress on the vaccination. Now we even have today more people vaccinated. As Patricia mentioned, 150,000 cases per day, 1,500 deaths per day. So where, where did we go wrong? What did we miss to get back to this point? In some cases, worse than we ever were in some states. Um, I th thank you very much, first of all, for the opportunity to uh, speak to you today. And as you ran through that list of people, many of them are my friends and uh, happy to be in touch with you after a long time, but at least uh, virtually. We've gone wrong almost from the start by underestimating the virus. Amongst the many things which Patricia was kind enough to mention, I'm a virologist. And I've uh, spent many years studying, working on a number of different viruses. And over that time, you get to understand their behavior and the threats 
that they can pose. And I can say from the very beginning, I've been deeply disturbed by the underestimated the power of this virus, by our administration, and I should say administrations, this one included, unfortunately, by some of our top spokesmen, the current spokesmen sometimes included as well. How have we underestimated? Well, let's just think back a bit. We remember when it was something happening in China and it wasn't gonna come here. Or if it did come here, we could damp it down by border controls or it would be kind of like the flu, but maybe not even so bad. Then we thought, well, even if it's bad, it's gonna go away in the summer. It's gonna be like SARS, it's just gonna disappear. We began to take it more seriously, but then we said, well, you know, it's really a matter of droplets and contact. You don't have to worry about aerosols that may linger in a room for a few hours. Well, it turns out that was not correct. Oh, don't worry. If we get some vaccines, it's not gonna change. It's pretty stable. It's got these things in it, uh, error prone, error correcting, they were saying. It's not gonna change so much. All of those have been wrong. And then you may remember more recently, if you're vaccinated, you're safe. You're not gonna get infected. If you do get infected, you won't transmit it. If you do transmit it, you're not gonna get sick. And if you get sick, you're not gonna die. Well, that's not gonna be true either, in my opinion. And I can talk about that a little more. So the first and foremost is we've gone wrong by underestimating our enemy. And our enemy in this case is the virus. Now, let me tell, talk a little bit about the virus. This is a very, very interesting virus. I mean, one thing that you come to understand, and I know it's not popular to say it, but viruses are beautiful works of nature. They are amazing in their intricacy. They've been refined by hundreds of millions of years, or at least tens of millions of years of evolution to do what they do. And you better understand how they do what they do if you're gonna fight it. It's like trying to fight an enemy and not knowing who they are. Are they little green men in the Karate Mia? Well, we, at least we knew who those were, those were. But this is something very different. So what is a natural habitat of this virus? Natural habitat of this particular virus is a bat cave. Bats, you may be surprised to know, are very long-lived. They're about the size of a mouse, but they live 30, sometimes more than 30 years. They live in groups that congregate, and the virus has got to survive in that environment. It's got to survive having infected the whole tribe once. It's got to infect them again, and again, and again, year after year after year in that tight little bat cave. And it's got to fight off other viruses because there are a lot of viruses trying to get past. Now, is there anything like that you've heard about before or seen before? The answer is obviously yes, it's flu. They work the same side of the ecological street, infecting uh, long-lived, immunocompetent species that have already been infected by their cousin or their previous incarnation. What does that mean? It means the virus, when it's, it, it's gotta be able to change, it's gotta be get into an animal that's fully immunized 
by previous exposure and do it again and again. That's a formidable thing to think a single vaccine's gonna wipe out. In fact, it was not reasonable to think it would. Some of us, like me, didn't think it would, that we would need at minimum a flu vaccine every year. And now that we're actually looking at the pattern of this disease, a winter and summer uh, burst, we might need two vaccines a year. Is that the end of the world? No, we get flu vaccines, but it could be worse because this virus is worse than the average flu. It's about 10 times worse in terms of death and disease and in economic destruction, it's enormously worse. So, so that, the, that's a long answer to a short question. No, no, no. But I think it's a, it's a way of thinking about this, which puts where we are in perspective. And I would say one final thing. We have created a new ecosystem. There are 8 billion of us. When I was born, there were 2.5 billion. When I was born, 80% of people lived in the countryside. We now 80% live in cities. We travel across international borders very freely. Billions of individual flights a year. We are a new ecosystem. And we are an attractive ecosystem for viruses. For viruses that can learn to get us once, twice, thrice, and all through our lives. So I'll stop there and take another question. Well, I guess just to follow up on what you were saying, so it sounds like if we were kind of getting it wrong from the get-go, first there was, I think, a couple of problems with the public getting the information we got. It never seemed to be clear messaging, which then led to obviously a lot of confusion and people saying, running out right now, getting a third booster or not getting vaccinated at all, unfortunately. But now we have the Delta variant. Now we may hear there's the Mu or the Lambda. It says, I'm asking this like to your, your first answer. Does that mean that these variants just will continue and that we just have to keep growing and accepting that this virus will be out there kind of lurching in the in, in everywhere we go and we just have to get used to figuring out a way to not get very sick from it um what you're describing is an endemic virus like the flu and in fact that's where we're headed this virus looked very much like it's endemic i would say almost all my virologist colleagues would now consider this to be an endemic virus what does endemic mean it means it's very well rooted in the population. It's almost impossible to get out, but it's beyond that. It's moved into the biosphere that surrounds us. Our dogs, 40, 50% of our dogs are infected. Our cats are infected. Our mice are infected. Our rats are infected. Deer are infected. There are about 100 different species so far, which we know can be infected. And as these viruses vary in us to get more competent to overcome existing immunity and to spread more easily, they get into more and more animals. And in the animals, they go through their own cycle of improving, sharpening their abilities to cope with the animal's immune system, the animal's uh, structures. And they can get worse. Some of the variants that affect us are thought to have come originally from mink. The humans infected mink, mink infected their carriers, 
And by the way, they infected the local dogs and cats too. And, uh, and so on. So I'm now just writing a paper on a virus that, or let me say more accurately, summarizing some research of people who went into the New York sewers and found some remarkable viruses that are much more mutant than anything we've seen before. They're in our sewers right now. They may not come from us. The man who found them thinks they might have come from dogs, but they have the potential to expand a very broad host range, including us. And they include many of the nastiest mutations and even a nastier one that they've ever seen. So the short answer to the question is, this is now an endemic virus and we've got to, we can't think we're gonna to come to an end of it. We've got to fight it to a draw, not to a definitive victory as we do with flu and so many other diseases. Um, as an overview of our, our physical health, you've also written about our mental health. Um, on the banner behind you, you have a, your book up there, CVPTSD, in which you look at the, the stress that, and you said we can't look at it as post because we're still going through this stress disorder, but you talk about how it affects children and parents and caregivers. I'm particularly interested on how we look at our children who, you know, last year knew they couldn't go to school. You know, they're obviously at various ages, they understand things differently. And now they're, they're going to school. Many of them are afraid to go to school, but they were armed last year with the information of, well, children don't get this so badly. You won't get sick if you're, you know, you're a young kid and maybe they were less fearful. So how do we deal with our children at this point in time, especially as school is opening? It's an extremely difficult question for parents and for, for my case, grandparents uh, that are really worried about our grandchildren and our children. Uh, first thing to say is the virus does infect children. Uh, the children transmit it better amongst each other and to adults than adults do, probably because there's more care and interaction with children, not because they're inherently more or less transmissible. The good news is it's still, even with the worst of the variants that we know so far, uh, affect children less. It may be, and there's some nice theories that are nice research on the fact that children have a, a better, what's called innate immune system. You know, you have two immune systems that function. One recognizes anything that's foreign called innate. So you immediately react to it. And children seem to do that better than most adults. And then there's an adaptive one that says, we can get this one specifically. So the virus has got to suppress both, but most important for it to get in and out, the innate immune system. But for some reason, the children seem to do better and don't get as sick. There's a substance that many of you have heard about called interferon. The virus hates interferon and does everything that make maybe 30 different ways to turn off interferon. Children seem to make more of it. And adults that don't make it or people who have an immune, inherited immune defect that don't make it very much get really sick. So the virus really doesn't like interferon. Children seem to be better at making interferon responses. So that's the good news. But you know, there's so many children now getting infected. There's 250,000 a week. There are a lot of children in hospitals. ICU units for pediatric ICU units are over, over flooded in a number of our uh, states now. So it is a real question. And some children will get very sick. And unfortunately, a few will die. 
So it is a real worry. Now, one thing we can do is to have our teachers vaccinated to make sure that every child is masked. But unfortunately, as we all know, that has become not a public health issue. It's become an emotional issue. And I say emotional because emotions are deeper than politics. You can call it a political issue, which it is, but it's deeper than that. You can see the anger and the, and the, the, the emotional force that's uh, behind the movements, the anti-masking movements in schools. It's, it's pretty, pretty upsetting. Uh, but you've asked some good questions and it's going to be a long time before this virus is under control enough that we can feel confident. I'm hopeful that we'll get some vaccines soon uh, for, for school-age kids. There are some countries already doing that. Um, you spoke about it being an emotional problem, political problem. In about 45 minutes, the President of the United States is going to address the country with a six-point plan of how we're going to kind of attack this virus anew. And it focuses very heavily on mandates um, for federal workers, as well as support for large corporations to insist on mandates. Basically, the government is saying, we've got your back to corporations who want to mandate vaccination. Uh, it also requires us to do a lot more testing. Are these the steps that we should expect from the president? What, what should, do you think, be, what, in addition to those steps, or I should ask, what else should he be doing? Like he has this, he's going to go on stage. What else would you tell him to do in 45 minutes? Well, you know, I have the privilege of being briefed by the White House on occasions. And um, you've summarized accurately what is coming, the six point plan. Much of it is mandates. And people around the world have noticed that when mandates are put in effect by the French or other groups, they work. Vaccines shoot up. People all of a sudden decide, well, if I want a job, I'm going to, now that's not everybody. There are opposition in the U.S. We expect, I expect more opposition, a lot of turmoil. But if people don't do it voluntarily, if people aren't willing, you know, we have a lot of rules. The rules are like drunk driving. You can't drive drunk. Okay. And that's, you know, you can object to a, a seatbelt. That's to protect your own life. But driving drunk, you can kill other people. Speeding, you can kill other people. So we do accept restrictions on our behavior uh, to save other people's lives. And this is one of those cases where refusing to take a vaccine that's free and as safe as any vaccine's ever been uh, is putting other people's lives at risk. We do that all the time. You know, how many schools and hospitals and businesses and jobs require vaccination of all sorts of things. Not COVID because it wasn't around, but you can't work in a hospital if you're not vaccinated for hepatitis B. You can't go to many, many schools if you're not vaccinated for A, B, and C. You just can't do it. So this is just, we accept that. That's part of our, our life. So I think it's the right thing to do. We'll see how bad the pushback is. But you asked another question, what aren't they doing? There's a couple of major steps that we aren't doing and never have done that could totally wipe out this disease. Just think about that for a minute. What is it we could do? So there are less in the last year and a half, less than 12 deaths in the whole country. 
And the answer is do what China did. That is a clear answer. The number of deaths in the last 16, 18 months in China is about two dozen from COVID. Today and yesterday, there were no infections in China. China is a big country. It exports tons of things. It has enormous borders with countries that are heavily infected. But what do they do? Well, I had the privilege of being part of the Harvard School of Public Health when we were helping the Chinese public health system understand what to do in case of another SARS outbreak. And they sent over their health minister, they sent over their top people for 10 years. And we ran seminars for them on what to do. And what did they do? Exactly what we taught them to do. Exactly what we at Harvard taught. And we taught at the Central Party School. We taught the people who are currently on the Politburo. We taught a lot of people exactly what to do, and they followed the playbook. We did not. We did not test to know who was infected, and we still don't. Our testing is pathetic. We never did contact tracing. Our contact tracing is beyond execrable. And we never did what's actually necessary is when you find somebody who's exposed, do something for Christ's sake. We never did that. That is the ABC of pandemic control. And we didn't do A, we didn't do B, and we didn't do C, and we're still not doing A or B or C or even contemplating it. So you ask me, what is it done? That's not done. Now, why it's not done in this country and in other countries is a very good question. And that has to do with the fabric of society. It has to do what polit political leaders can and can't do, given their polis and their population and what people will accept. You know, you're beginning to see that leaders lead from behind, not from the front. Uh, and a country, maybe you, you just say, if a country doesn't want to protect itself, you can't protect them, no matter what kind of a leader you are. It isn't that our leaders don't know what to do. And in fact, any thinking person should be able to look at China and say, what the hell is going on there that's not going on here? The knee-jerk reaction I get every single time, I can punch him in the face. Oh, that's totalitarianism. Uh-uh. That's people in China taking care of one another. Maybe it's 3,000 years of living close together. For whatever reason, they are willing to accept restrictions on their freedoms, so-called freedoms. And believe me, I have offices in China and people who have been working there. They are happy as clams. They go to movies, they go to parties, they travel. Occasionally, a city gets shut down for two weeks. And then they go right back to business as usual. If you want to be safe from COVID, go to China. Stay out of the United States. That is a sad, sad thing to have to say. You, you talked about the fabric of society, and it was something we touched on a little bit before we went live on this conversation. And while we can't, you know, get rid of stupid, as we say, it's not just stupid, it is the fabric of our society in the sense of, as one, as a group, as a culture, we've lost the desire, it seems like, to be care for one another. I get vaccinated and everyone else around or gets tested because it's healthier for everybody else as well versus this now political environment we live in with the us versus them and either you're if you're for if you're for vaccination then you're against freedom 
but somehow it's the, so complicated you know what we're talking about now for a virologist, this is really complicated territory, let me tell you. But, but, if but there's it, something so basic, though, is have we just lost our humanity in caring about one another? You know, we haven't, because when there's a disaster, I remember 9-11, Americans all pitch in. Yeah. Look at us taking care of the Afghans, for Pete's sake, our mortal enemies. We're taking in right, left, center. Everybody's happy to help the, the Afghans in this country. We are, and we have been still compassionate, but there are limits to our compassion, apparently. And we can get excited politically and motivated this way or that way. And I think the, the, the whole idea that taking a vaccine is an impersonal infringement, I think that's a, you know, it's a, it's a bad idea. Now, it's partly, you could say partly, it's a well-organized society that China has. But I think it's deeper than that. It's people respect one another. And you know, if you look at Japan, and even Japan now is going through a terrible crisis for them, it's about a 1 20th the crisis that we're in, in terms of numbers per, per capita. So it, there are societies that do better than others. Australia has done better, although it has its crisis now. New Zealand has done better. Taiwan has done better. Singapore has done better. There are a number of countries that have done better, um, but it's, 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 if, if it's anything that positive that comes out of this, in my hope, is that over time, we learn to be more caring for one another. That's uh, I, I wonder, I, after 650,000 deaths in this country, how we couldn't have had a unifying force of nationalism to fight this. I mean, you're right. I've been thinking about this, especially with 9-11 coming up in a couple of days. I wonder if we, if we can't unite like we did after 9-11 for 650,000 deaths, I, I do wonder where we are going to start to find a way to even begin to, to get back to some kind of caring for one another. But it's, the, it's, 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 it's to me, if you want to ask me what's most horrifying about this, it's to know that these deaths, that human culture has it in it to control the pandemic without a vaccine and did it. With a vaccine, it's even simpler, but we're putting all our weight on a vaccine which will never do the job. That's what virology tells you. These viruses know how to cope with our immune system. Now, there's one other thing that we can do medically, which we're beginning to do, but we can ramp up very strongly. And that is what I call prophylactic treatment. You know, that's how we deal now, beginning to do very effectively with HIV AIDS. We never got a vaccine. We may never get a vaccine, but we can control the spread of AIDS by those people who are, think they're likely to be exposed to take a treatment pretty soon. It'll be one shot every six months and you don't get it. What's the equivalent? Identify, contact, trace, and take a pill. Take a pill, that's all it will take. And that is coming. So then maybe, because the end of it isn't a two-week isolation. The end is taking a pill that's free. Maybe that will change our willingness to test, our willingness to get contact trace, and that could, with vaccines, end this. In terms that one end, it'll still be coming back, but end it in terms of something that destroys our life, our economy, and our kids. So I think that is my hope, and I would like to see a new warp speed to develop those pills. As I study the virus, 
And I came up with a theory of combination chemotherapy for HIV, which has worked so well, and pointed out all the targets. I'm busy pointing out all the targets. We have many more targets in this virus than we had for HIV. We're working with one or two of not even necessarily the best targets. We should be doing a full court warp speed effort across the board to shut this thing down, which we can do. So I think if we have what I call multimodal COVID control, vaccines, rigorous public health, and at the end of that trail of public health, you have prophylactic therapy. We, are, we know that works. If you go to a nursing home that they've been exposed and you give an antibody, a monoclonal antibody to the residents, you stop it cold. Let me say there's good news for the flu, for those of you who are working, worried about the flu season. There's a drug called Zofluza. It's a brand new drug that if you take it after being exposed to the flu, your chance of catching the flu is 80% reduced. It's got a marvelous mechanism of action. It's invented by the Japanese, sold by Genentech. Uh, doctors can prescribe it to you. I have it for my entire family and grandchildren. And the moment anybody seems to have the flu, we all pop the pill. Uh, and hopefully if there is another flu season this year, that's the thing to do. Stock up on Zofluza. Baloxavir Marboxyl is its actual name. That's what we want. And that's what we can get. But we need to speed up our effort so we get it sooner than later. All right, just one more question before we go to the Q&A. Um, another book you wrote was My Lifelong Fight Against Disease, Polio and AIDS to COVID-19. So what's the, what's the next step of that fight? What's the next challenge? <laughs> well, it's going to be, I don't know how long I'm going to live, but COVID's going to be around for as long as I'm around. Um, I think the, the challenge is trying to understand, and, and to the extent I can, through the knowledge of what these viruses are and what they can do and the fact that we're a sitting duck at this point for every new one that wants to come and get us, is to work on what I've done for the last 15 years is, is uh, through my foundation, try to work on health systems. And the impetus there is, you know, there are many diseases we can cure, even in our own country, but people still suffer and die from them because the health system isn't fine-tuned. And there's two parts to a fine-tuned health system. One is the government and the payment systems, the insurance systems, the government payment systems. That's just one piece of it. I wrote a whole book called World Class, which is responsibility of individual health systems to be as good as they can be. And believe me, they can be a lot better than they are. I've uh, The book takes NYU Langone from a time when it was at the bottom third in quality and safety, and the CEO said that's fine with him as long as he was solvent. Then it was going bankrupt. That wasn't fine with the board of directors. They were like number 40 in medical school uh, uh, rankings, and they were going bust. 10 years later, they turned it all around, not doing a single thing from a government side, just their own restructuring. So you need both system-wide opportunity, and then you need the individual players to be excellent. And you have to demand excellence. You don't get it if you don't demand it. Probably the single biggest change in American healthcare has been, if you break it, you got to fix it, which means if somebody has an operation and they come back a month later, within a month and needs fixing up again, you pay for it. 
That has changed quality standards. The other thing, we're going to rate you based on what your patients say, how well you, you did, not what you say, how well you did. Those two things are in the process of upping the game across the board. You get penalized, actually financially penalized for messing up, and you get penalized for making your patients unhappy. So the more you do on those two fronts, the better it is for you, for me, for the whole system. So what you want to see, what I want to see is through this crisis, it's obvious our public health service is not up to par. You know, if you read stories about even before COVID, some person in California has a public health crisis, tries to get help from the government. It's a mess. Can our government tell us to be vaccinated? You see how difficult it is. What can governments do? Our public health service is underfunded. It's disorganized. It's like, it's almost like an army with no soldiers. It's really a mess. And it's not just our country, it's many, many countries. This has shown uh, the problems uh, that we have. Why is it that a governor in one state can say, you can't even put a mask into your, into your schools? How can a governor do that? When the federal government should say, you've got to put a mask into your schools. So we have to rethink. Those are the kinds of things that I would like to, to see change. And then on a, on a cultural change, it's a much harder, much harder push. But I think over time, and maybe we'll take us another couple hundred years to get there, but hopefully we will get there too, where we have a series of, of um, behaviors and understandings about what our own behavior means for our safety and for others. Well, thank you so much, Doctor. With that, I am going to turn it over to Patricia, who will kick off our Q&A portion. And Patricia is going to take off her mute. There you go. <laughs> it works a lot better that way. Uh, thank you both for a terrific conversation. I have a zillion questions myself. Um, but I did want to ask one for a friend, but first I want to um, acknowledge and welcome uh, one of our honorary advisory board members and our former secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson. Thank you for coming, Jay. And I think Jay has a question, so I'm going to let you go first. Um, I, I just have a, I just want to vent for a minute in the form of a question. I didn't want to miss this because I didn't want to see two of my favorite people, Bill Hazeltine and Susan Del Percio in action. Um, Bill, be careful, she's really sharp. <laughs> I try. Well, I've been doing a lot of TV interviews this week and podcast as a retrospective on 9-11. And I've been saying pretty much the same thing the two of you are saying, that the polarization of our democracy and the politicization of our government and our democracy is itself a homeland security threat. And that I fear if there was another 9-11 that required the nation to be summoned to one national purpose, we could not do so. And the best evidence of that is our reaction to COVID our attitude about the virus and our attitude about the vaccine has broken down along political lines such that the death toll has been greatly aggravated and exaggerated and it didn't have to be this way. What, what troubles me most is that 
so many Americans are prepared to believe that their government is lying to them about the vaccine and are more prepared to believe some bullshit they read on social media about how a deworming medicine for cows and horses is better. And Bill, I know you're not a, I know you're a scientist, but you're not a social scientist. But the question that I continue to ask myself is how do we, how do we fix that? How do we solve that problem? And I wondered from your experience, whether there are any lessons learned from the spread of AIDS in the 1980s um, I, I will say this, one, one other thing, and then I'll stop. We do have, and you know this, Bill, we do have in our history a, a legacy of the lack of informed consent when it comes to vaccines. 21 years ago, when I was general counsel of the Air Force, I had to go up to a place called Barrow, Alaska, to formally apologize to an Indian tribe of Inupiats because the United States Air Force had given them an experimental drug to test the effects of iodine on somebody in cold weather without telling them about the risk of cancer. And there are, there's a legacy of misuse and abuse in the black community, which I think still resonates today in some quarters, which is why it's not all just Trumpers. It's, there are some in the black community who are suspicious mm -hmm. of and so I just, I mean, you've been talking about this, but I just wonder whether there are any lessons to be learned from the, from the AIDS experience here. Well, you know, the AIDS experience was so peculiar because uh, it didn't affect everybody. It affected segments of society. There was a fear <clears throat> that it could get out, but it turns out our sexual uh, anthropology, if you have it, is uh, pretty divided. Um, pretty well stratified. Uh, that isn't a true place in like uh, Durban, where I've been, where 70% of young women between 15 and 25 were infected. So the virus could have spread, never did. It's, uh, you know, one of the things you learn when you study viruses is they really depend on human behavior. One of the things people haven't talked about really with Delta or the vaccine is how much is driven by human behavior. Israel and Iceland are really good cases in point. They're not fully vaccinated, but they're as vaccinated as we and much of Europe is ever likely to get. And they drove it right down to zero. They opened up and whammo, did they ever get it? Israel is worse than it's ever been in terms of hospitalizations and deaths and infections, despite all the vaccines. Human behavior is really important in controlling this, masking social distancing. As long as this is out and spreading around, if you're not following the rules. I was asked earlier before we started, would I fly a plane? I still don't fly. I'm not planning to. A plane and the airport's about the most dangerous things you can do. You're in a closed space with a bunch of strangers. Who knows? <clears throat> I'd much rather go to a New York restaurant than fly on an airplane. But even in New York, if I go to dinner right outside, not inside. So your questions, I think that many of them are un unanswerable. The big difference with 9-11, of course, is that it was an outside force. The virus is an outside force, but we don't recognize it as that. We recognize it as another fellow human being. You remember what Pogo said? I met the enemy and he's us. 
I think you've summarized that pretty well. We think we're our own enemy. Uh, and so the politicization is a terrible thing that's happened. Uh, we all know that our president, our past president, did his best to politicize it. And still his followers, even if he isn't doing it now, his followers are doing it for political gain. And it's a horrible thing to watch. Uh, will, it, will they be punished for that? Not clear yet. You know, what do you, if you're a Floridian, Floridian and you're seeing your hospitals flooded, you see your kids having to come back from school over and over again, what are you going to think about a governor who encourages that? So I don't know what's going to happen. It's going to be interesting to see how fast people understand what's going on. Unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be very fast at all at this point. And that's it. Let's move on to a more, a more readily answered question. Oh, thank Sorry. you. Thanks, Thanks so Jay. much. You're we're, right to be frustrated. We all are. I expressed my frustrations a little earlier. We're so happy to have you weigh in, Jay. Thank you so much. Um, I, I have a question for somebody who's been very, very ill, took the vaccination. He has an immuno, immunized, immunosuppressed situation from chronic fatigue syndrome. He took the vaccination and it gave him a new lease on life for a period of weeks. Is there anything to that vaccination that can help other people with similar diseases for longer periods of time? And then we'll go to our other questions. Um, the vaccine works on many people who have some types of immunosuppression. Um, for example, a booster, a third shot is really important for people who've had organ transplants. Um, so if there are people who have very specific kinds of immunosuppression, the vaccines can really do a lot of good. On others uh, who are either in genetically uh, incapable of mounting certain kinds of immune responses or who are undergoing very serious chemotherapy or uh, other types of therapy, the vaccines don't do so well. Let me talk about the boosters for a minute because I know that's a question on many people's minds. If you're over 60, get a booster, get a booster after five months, after five months. You know, people are giving you all sorts of noise about it. Boosters increase your resistance to infection by 20 to 30 fold, 20 to 30 fold. And against Delta specifically, some of the vaccines, the, the boosters 40 fold. You want that protection. You need that protection. Don't assume because you had two vaccines five months ago, you're protected. If you're my age, you're not protected or you're very likely not protected. And I don't believe, although my colleagues, most of them do believe, you'll be protected from, from hospitalization and death. I don't think that's true. When you think about a vaccine, there are five things you have to consider. One, what vaccine are you taking? They're not all equal. You want Pfizer or Moderna. You don't want an adenovirus vaccine. You don't want one of the killed vaccines. They're just better. Second, there may be better ones coming along, but those are the ones we've got right now. Second, who are you? Are you over 60, over 65, over 70? You're not going to make the same kind of immune response for any vaccine, this one included. Third, how long ago did you have it? Some vaccines, like polio and others, give you a long protection. But the nature of this virus is that it doesn't allow you to give 
get long protection, whether it's through a vaccine or natural infection. Your half-life of your protective immunity is about three months. And every three months go by, it's half what it was before. And if you're like me, you don't start off with a full tank of gas. You're about two thirds down from a younger person. So you're running out of gas pretty soon after about five months. Don't be inhibited. Go to a, a Walmart, go to anywhere. And they will give you a shot because they have extra doses and they want to get rid of them. You know, there may be a nasty pharmacist. I'm not going to give it to you. Then go to another pharmacy. They will. Or go to your doctor. Now that it's approved, every doctor has the right to give you that if they want. Every doctor has the right to give you a vaccine, that vaccine that you want if you ask them. Now they might not do it, but then go to another doctor. So I assume many of you are over 60, get a third shot. And then keep listening to see if you need it in a year, another shot. Okay, uh, let me go to Stan Cohen as a <coughs> specific basic question, Stan. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, so in keeping with what you're saying, I, uh, I am planning to spend uh, some amount of time in Florida, the Palm Beaches uh, this, uh, this winter. And because uh, we were talking about not flying, we were talking about maybe taking the car trip over a couple of weeks. Uh, but we were thinking maybe going down through the Appalachian trails and you know, uh, seeing some of the cities and sites. What do you think? Uh, how stupid are we being? And, and you know, is the answer? I think it's not a good bet. Lives. You know, it depends. If you drive, you got to stay in motels and do a lot of stuff. Get yourself an RV. <laughs> you know that uh, that great big old RV. Get behind the wheel, drive it like a bus, and uh, you know, stock up on all your gourmet foods and enjoy your trip down. That's okay, we know. But, well, I you know, know a lot of people take their private planes. That's another good thing to do if your pilots are vaccinated. Okay, so it's really the flat flying that really gets you. Yeah, it's going through the airport and being in that closed space. And even though they say the air changes a lot, I've seen the data of people getting infected with this, with coronaviruses. You get infected on these planes. And so I, you know, I don't trust people to wear their masks. You've seen the TV shot, like the guy with that mask last night. That was, that was pretty, pretty fierce. Uh, but he's not the only one. It's the quiet ones that, you know, just take their mask off when you're not looking. That's uh, the ones that I'd more worry about. Patricia, if I may, on that, if I'm going to get the booster, should I get it now or should I get it more like in November? Get it as soon as you can. And once five months have gone by, get your booster. Or get a third shot. I call it a third shot, but get get it. It really does make a big, big difference. You know, when you you hear all this stuff about the FDA has to prove it or not, people I've seen the data, and our government has seen the data, and the CDC is seeing the data. It is really good data to show you. And there's a and the other thing that's happened over the last few months is people wondered if there's a good correlation between total antibodies, neutralizing antibodies and protection. It's almost a straight line. It's a very, very tight correlation. So to say that this is 40 times more potent in neutralizing Delta is to say you're 40 times more protected. 
you want that protection. Okay, how about uh, we go to Richard Green? Thank you, Patricia. <clears throat> Hi, doctor. I, I'm just really curious why we're not talking about other things, why we're not talking about things that affect the innate immune system when we're only focusing on the adaptive. For example, the CDC said that 78% of the people who get really sick and end up dying are obese or overweight. Why are we not doing what Dr. Fauci does and prioritize exercise and a healthy diet. And also the statistics show that an overwhelming percentage of people, especially people of color who are really having a hard time with COVID are extraordinarily deficient in vitamin D. That costs three to four cents a day. Why are we not talking about vitamin D? Or, and, um, okay, and so good let, me, let me ask and you, let me answer your questions a little bit specifically. Vitamin D, I don't think the evidence is really convincing yet. I know there are some people who believe it. I've read the evidence. I don't think it doesn't convince me yet. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, be thinner, that we shouldn't have diabetes uh, and all of those things, which we all agree to. I think there, it, it isn't, you also mentioned the innate immune system. That's a very important part of this story. I've just written a long series. Uh, I write for Forbes and their blog and I'm now up to episode 11. Uh, about describing exactly how this virus gets in and gets out before you know you've got it and what the variants are doing to allow it to do that better. And most of that is messing with your innate immune system. This virus switches it off. It's like a cloak of invisibility. It, sh it shields itself from your innate immune system. So you don't even know, you, you don't feel it. By the time you start to feel it, that's because you're getting an immune reaction. You're not feeling the virus, you're feeling your immune reaction that's making you feverish and your muscles hurt. So this virus is in and out. Flu does the same thing. It beats your immune system to the punch. Even your memory system, it beats to the punch. That's why it can get in and get out as long as it, there are no antibodies to stop it right away. Once it gets in, it can get right back out um, to infect someone else. And the virus is evolving to get in and out faster, to turn off your innate immune system even further. Now, the only thing, there are a few things we know that can stimulate the immune system. Fortunately, you have an alternative pathway called STING, S-T-I-N-G. And there are new drugs that people have discovered that stimulate STING, even if all the things that the virus does to turn off the innate immunity are turned off. So that's a hope to stimulate innate immunity, not because you're thin, but because you take a pill. And I think those are the kinds of things that people are thinking about now. But uh, innate immunity, I think, you know, your question is interesting, but to the first approximation, all humans are subject to being infected. Yes, it makes a big difference. What your overall age is, number one, weight, number two, diabetes, number three, and then there are a few other minor factors. But you're certainly right that those are the ones that put you in the hospital and can kill you. I'd love to get you some vitamin D information uh, because uh, um, the for former- For your information, I take vitamin D anyway. Well, and so does Dr. For another purpose. I take it for another purpose, but okay. uh, I think we better move on. Okay. Yeah, uh, okay. We've got uh, Jim Ferrari next and then Ed Blank. James? Oh, it's me. 
Well, you know what it is. Okay. Theater. Here on, babe. Okay. Uh, hi, Dr. Hazelton. Uh, you pretty much answered some of my questioning. I do think that, that, that um, uh, I guess my, how, how do I phrase this? Uh, the president's going to come on TV shortly, right, and give a six bullet point plan. Um, what do you hope that plan to be? Well, I'm pretty sure what the plan will be because I've had it explained to me. It's going to be many more vaccine mandate, mandates. It's going to be facilitating testing. And then it's going to be a lot of recommendations of what you should do. Uh, the first two are probably going to have, the first will have a great deal of effect because if you don't uh, get vaccinated, you're going to be out of a whole lot of jobs. Uh, the testing, I think we've messed up and we're going to continue to mess up. And we know how well people are following, this is what you should do. So it'll do some good, but the good it will do will be mostly getting more people vaccinated. That's my Thank candid opinion. Thank you. I don't think a bully public works at this point. And there's a lot of psychologists I've been talking to too that don't think bully puppets at this point are the answer. People don't want to be preached at. They don't want to be listened. They don't want to listen to anybody but people they really trust. So it's, it's, it's I think, the mandates are the only thing that are really going to drive vaccines. And that's the hope. And it is true that the more we're vaccinated, the better we're off we'll be. It isn't the only answer, but it is certainly a good step in the right direction. We have a the most important question. thing that people don't get yet about vaccines is how temporary they are. The protection you get from infection, from disease, from hospitalization, and worse. Yeah, I know. It's all temporary. And that's why I'm such a big fan of boosters and possibly, like flu, semi-annual or annual of your shots. I think that's where we're headed. Uh, plus, one thing that the good thing about chemotherapy and drugs, these viruses never seen them. They've had a mi millions of years of fighting immunity. They've had no experience fighting chemical treatments. And as long as you're able to counter their ability to mutate by using two or three at once, you've got a good shot at knocking it out. You know, hepatitis C is a changeable virus. We can knock it out completely. I've studied what just happened in Egypt where they treated, they tested and treated for free everybody who had hepatitis C and eliminated from their country. Four million people eliminated hepatitis C. Wow. It can be done. These drugs are fantastic when you get them. Okay, Ed, Ed Blank, you're next. Hi, I, as you know, with theaters and museums are opening now. They're requiring a proof of vax before you get in, but how safe is it really to, to, go, in, to go to a museum? Or a uh, it's safer than if they didn't do that by a long shot. There are some people who are still gonna be there who have been fully vaccinated and have been recently infected and are transmitting the virus. I would say it's it's much safer than if they didn't require it, and that if you're in there, you should wear a mask and keep your distance. But um, I just tell you, I'm a mu big museum goer. I would spend about ten percent of my waking hours in museums. I haven't been in a museum for over a year and a half, and don't intend to be in one. But that's me. I'm over a certain age. I don't trust the vaccines to protect me, even my boosters. Uh, against everything, so I. But I have a luxury of being able to do what I want, and not everybody has that luxury. Yeah. So she's here tonight. Okay, Toby Horn, 
can you go next? And then Ralph Dawson. Uh, Patricia, I can't find my question right now. Can you come back to me? Sure. How about Ralph? Are you all set? Yeah, um, uh, sort of a two-parter. One is, what did we buy here in the mid-Atlantic in the Northeast by being so uh, uh, diligent about this? Did we buy much? Or is it just a matter of time it's going to be upon us come November or December? That, that, that's uh, we bought, we bought, let me answer the first part. We bought ourselves a much lower infection rate, much lower than the rest of the country. Our IC units aren't overflowing. Um, and if we don't get boosters, if we don't get a third shot, we may see a big resurgence. Uh, so I'm for, you know, what Israel has done, Israel's like the canary in the coal mine. They're now vaccinating people down to the age of 30, and I'm sure they'll go lower pretty soon. Um, and I'd like to see as soon as possible our young kids get their vaccines too. Uh, I hope they, that speeds along. They've got to show they're safe. They've got to figure out the dosing. But... Um, that's going to make a difference. So I think we can, if we're, if we maintain our masking, if we maintain our high vaccination rates, I think we can dodge the worst of it this, this winter. And how much of a percentage of current infections is being, becoming breakthrough infections? Uh, it's still relatively small. I can't give you a, a number. I would say probably less than 10% at the moment. Seems to make it. That's Thank only in the US. In Israel, it's much, much higher than that. It's like 60, 70%. Thank you. That's why they're so head up on using uh, the third shot for as many people as possible, as fast as possible. And as I said, the same thing in Iceland, by the way. It's not just an Israeli phenomenon. Um, and it's also, as I said, it's the time from the last vaccine plus social behavior that's driven depended the new infections in both Israel and Iceland that are our sort of telescope into the future. If I could cheat with one more thing, do you think it would help if we actually showed people the carnage, if we showed how bad people are on the way to dying? Why, why, I don't know. Why you've seen it on your TV. You've seen these people who are saying, I didn't believe in vaccines and I wish I did, but now I'm, don't please get a vaccine. You've seen them struggle for breath. Uh, I don't know how much more gruesome than you want. My gruesome moment came when uh, there was a morgue on, I think, 70 outside of Lenox Hill on the street with about 40 bodies in it. That was pretty gruesome for all of us in New York. As you will also remember those uh, ambulances, night and day. But the 40 bodies on the street, one of them, a friend of mine, was pretty gruesome. Got in these black body bags with they, just the name of plastic plastered on it. It's pretty hard. It was awful in New York. It was really chilling, as is this conversation <laughs> in large measure. Um, we we want to do a lightning round because we've got three more questions if we can get to them. Barbara Hochhauser, then Gerald, then Toby and then back to Susan. So see if we can get through this. Barbara, are you ready? Yes, I just unmuted myself. Hi, um, I just had a question about the booster shot, whether we have to get the same uh, booster from the same company 
uh, as we answer quick answer is no doesn't matter what you get i prefer pfizer or moderna no matter what you've had before just like you, you don't ever ask who's made your flu vaccine i never asked them i bet you didn't either no don't bother thank you gerald thanks patricia um this is great william um so follow-up to barbara's question is uh is it more effective if you got Moderna to then get the booster from Pfizer or vice versa? Unknown, I'd take either one. Okay. Thank you. Toby, do you um, have your yes. question? Sure. Um, when will they open up the boosters to other than the immunocompromised? Because I've been trying to get one and I've been told you're not immunocompromised according to their- uh, I don't know who you went to, but the pharmacies I've gone to and all my friends go through, they just give them the shot. Really? <laughs> Can yeah. you just, yeah. just go to another pharmacy. <laughs> so okay. that's, that's you know, or, or go to your, your family physician, say I want to show your, your doctor. It could be a cardiologist, it could be anybody. Any doctor is licensed to give you this approved drug. That is the rules for approved drug. Anybody, any doctor has a right to give you any drug which FDA, FDA has approved, regardless of the restrictions that are, that are on that drug. I mean, they won't give it to you. It's going to kill you usually, but usually, but uh, they have, you have the right to ask and they, and they should give it to you if you want it. But you can Great. generally just go to a pharmacy and show, you know, make an appointment and say, yeah. Or I've had friends who, uh, let's put it this way, dissemble and say they've never been vaccinated and then they get a shot. So. Well, there is one question on the Dwayne Reed uh, uh, form that you have to fill out that says, you know, list, do you have cancer? Do you have this? Do you have that? But the, at the end, it says, I do not wish to disclose. And a lot of yeah. people are just checking that off. Yeah. Yep. Thank so you for that. Thank you both, William and Susan. Susan, do you have a last question or last comment? Um, my only last question is, will you come back and speak to us in another couple of months for another briefing? Because I think we'll need it. Well, let's hope we don't. But the answer is yes, I'd be happy to. Well, I'll take the good uh, There are a lot of friends on this call. I'm always happy to see my friends, at least if I only see them virtually. Okay. So uh, well, it's a pleasure to be. To, we're to, happy to see you, and uh, especially since you're not going out that much. So thank you so much. And thank you, Susan. This was really um, terrific. So I hope we see you again soon. Everybody, please um, check out our schedule. We've got a lot coming up. Alexander Vindman on September 22nd. Um, he, of course, he was the uh, lieutenant colonel who ended up on the call um, uh, about Ukraine with the Ukrainian president and our president. Um, Rising leaders Abigail Spanberger on October 5th and Chrissy Houlihan on October 12th. Tish James, our New York AG on November 10th and many more coming up. So please tune in and thank you, Bill. Thank you, Susan, so much. I hope we see you again soon. Thank you.